Welcome to The Dish, the culinary travel podcast focusing on the stories behind world-famous foods. We are your hosts, Tom and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us for tasty histories, destination food guides, and more. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Dish. In this episode, we're talking about one of the world's most famous sauces, Worcestershire sauce. And this is a part of our shopping list series. So rather than talking about a full dish or dishes from a specific destination, we're talking about something you might find on your shopping list. So in this shopping list series, we discuss the stories of famous ingredients and condiments, and maybe a few other little things that take our fancy that we want to throw in here that are a little bit sort of, you know, shorter episodes, not the full crazy one hour big episodes that take forever to research, just uh, some interesting little tidbits about some of our favorite ingredients. Yeah, it's sort of some of the things we come across in everyday life and go, where did this come from? And so we decided to put together a little mini episodes for you. Yeah. So in this episode, Worcestershire sauce. And yes... That's how it's pronounced, approximately. I grew up about two hours from Worcester, so although locals in the city may disagree slightly with my accent, I'm not too far off. It is definitely not Worcestershire sauce, or Worcestershire sauce, or anything similar to that, though some may accept Worcestershire sauce. If they pronounce it, if they pronounce it with a West Country accent like I would use. So if you sound like Mr. Frodo. You could say Worcestershire sauce. But really, you say Worcestershire sauce. They're only forgiving you because you sound so damn cute. Oh, it's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Worcestershire sauce. So we'll be going with Worcestershire sauce in this episode because that's how everybody I know pronounces it. Uh, Worcestershire sauce is, of course, popular all over the world. From adding it to Bloody Mary cocktails to putting it on meat or splashing it atop your grilled cheese on toast, it adds a complex, piquant, and umami flavor to whatever it touches. In fact, in the Yucatan region of Mexico, where it is called salsa inglés, uh, English sauce to be translated, they even add it to the seafood spaghetti. Oh, yeah, that always used to freak me out. Sometimes they will sprinkle it on top of their pizza as well. Yeah, they put it on pizza, which I guess is similar to having it on cheese on toast, but I don't know, just a, a little different. Yeah. So yeah, it's actually very common in seafood restaurants there. We saw it on the table in pretty much every seafood restaurant yeah. we went to. They'll have like a creamy prawn pasta and they will splash a whole bunch of Worcestershire sauce on it. Bizarre, but they seem to love it. So, you know, let them do their thing. But whatever you use it for, it certainly has a unique flavor. The original recipe came from Lillian Perrins of Worcester, and imitation brands have been trying to crack the secret of its ingredients ever since its invention back in the 19th century. So the exact recipe is super top secret, but it is known to include some common and exotic ingredients such as anchovies, shallots, chilies, cloves, tamarind, which is a sour sort of it's fruit. It's almost like a fruit, but they, they mash it up into a paste, sour paste. They use it in a lot of Asian cooking and Indian cooking. Also, garlic, sugar, molasses, vinegar, and salt. That's what people reckon's in it, but they haven't released the exact ingredients. It, it was bizarre that, you, that someone would think, hey, let's throw all this together, especially the anchovies. Ew. Like, why would you throw all of that into a pot, cook it down and go, let's give this a shot? Well, we're going to find out in this episode, aren't we? Yes, we are. So after blending the ingredients, it's left to ferment, which brings about a complete transformation and many new flavors. And that's the delicious taste of Worcestershire sauce that we have when we open that bottle. Uh, the anchovies make Worcestershire a type of fish sauce. And although vegetarian versions have been created, 
I don't think they're even close to the same thing. They don't taste as good. No, it's hard to recreate that anchovy flavor. I don't like anchovies. I hate anchovies. But I have to admit, I love a good olive tapenade and I love a good Worcestershire sauce. It does add that extra element that it it really needs. Yeah, anchovies are a pretty magical thing. Even if you don't like eating them straight up, they can add to some dishes. You may not have even known that Worcestershire sauce had anchovies in, but No, I just found that out myself. Oh, really? I'm in that team. I was like, oh, no, another dish that's uh, got anchovies in it they keep doing this to me uh, it's because they're actually delicious i'll never convince you but they are they're not but i as i just said i do agree they don't taste the same if you don't have them in there so the official legend the original story that is posted many places across the internet goes roughly like this although the details do vary on a few websites this seems to be the one that lee and parents themselves would like us to believe is true and uh, we'll get into whether it is or not as we go through the episode. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Well, exactly. And I think that's exactly the concept that we're going to find as we move through this. All right. Lee and Perrins were both chemists and they went into business together, opening a shop at 68 Broad Street in Worcester in January 1823. They sold a mix of concoctions from herbs and spices to remedies. Their initial catalogue may have listed some 300 items. So they were actually building their experience with mixing food products from all the way back in 1823. Now, around the year 1837, a local aristocrat called Lord Sandis had recently returned from a stint as the governor of Bengal, which was the British-ruled state of India at the time. They didn't own all of India at that point. That was when they were still growing that colony. So he came back, and after tasting a fish-based sauce in the region, he had managed to acquire the recipe and wanted the two chemists to recreate it for him. So they probably produced it, as written in the recipe, and being that they were in Worcester, which is actually a port on the River Severn in England, it's very close to all the shipping routes that were coming from the east and bringing oriental products. So it was very easy for them to get the right ingredients and produce it exactly as written. But they tasted it after making it and decided it was horrible. Well, listen to the ingredients. Yeah. Yeah. They were like, this is disgusting. Are you serious? They gave a sample to Lord Sandis, but they kept the rest in a barrel in the storeroom. We're like, well, that was a failed experiment. Hopefully he'll enjoy his little sample, but I don't think he'll be coming back for any more. Now, two years later, they needed to clear a space in the storeroom. So they began getting rid of old stock. They found the barrel of sauce and decided to give it a final taste before disposing of it. It Wait, wait, wait. Who just goes and tries something in a barrel that's been sitting somewhere for two years? They're chemists. They dared each other. Have you not that yet? was a dare. It could be a dare. It's like, I'll give you five pounds if you, if you drink that right now. You know, chemists are crazy. They will try anything Ugh. if they invented it. Like Marie Curie used, like, got complete cancer out of the fact that she was messing with radioactivity. She was like, oh, I'll just have a go with this. No, I'll be fine. We'll see what happens. And then she gets cancer. Well, didn't the, the guy who created penicillin like, inject his son first? Like, he was looking to create something else and he injected his son. He's like, ah, oh, I'll just use the kid. I think the dude who did the smallpox one injected himself yes. to test on smallpox. Yeah, you're right. Okay, they're bonkers. Chemists just do this. This is the 19th century. Chemists do this stuff. So they went, all right, let's give this a go. It's been in a barrel for two years. Let's see what happened. And they found that the sauce in the barrel was amazing. It had totally mellowed out the horrible flavor. All of the disgusting parts had sort of disappeared and just gone into a beautiful umami picante wonderland that is Worcestershire sauce. And so they bottled the sauce and they set about marketing it. And so the legend is set. Or is it? That's the official story. That's what happens. Okay, so that's what they write on the on the packet. Yeah. So that's at least what they write sort of on their website. That's sort of 
basically what a lot of other websites have written, that that's the basic story. That's what's happened. So, I'm always a little skeptical of these things. It seems embellished to make them look super cool. Let Okay, well, I, I feel like you've got something up your sleeve. I had to do a lot of digging to figure all this out, but here we go. So, the first thing to learn is that the name Lord Sandis is not a name of a specific person. It is actually a title. So, in the 1830s, Lord Arthur Sandis, originally named Arthur Hill, held that title. So, basically, the name changes all the time. Ah. So, this is the guy who was Lord Sandis in the 1830s, which is at the time when they invented this. So, this is the guy that should have brought them the recipe, right? So, he was a member of parliament from 1817 to 1836. He became Lord Sanders in 1836 and left his parliament job to take on the lordship as a full-time responsibility. His family home is Ombersley Court on the outskirts of Worcester. So that adds up. He is an aristocrat from Worcester. Did he ever go to India? This, <laughs> this is, is where yeah, you, you're trying to predict what's happening here. Yeah, I think everyone is. So it is certain that he returned to Ombersley Court and Worcester in, in 1836 because that is when he became. Lord Sandis. He took on the role from the previous Lord Sandis, who died, so he had to move home. But as a UK politician, up until, until 1836, he was based in the UK. He was not the governor uh-huh. of Bengal. He was not in India in any sense. And there's little reason between 1836 and when he probably went to the shop or allegedly went to the shop, which would have been around 1837 or 1836, There doesn't seem to be much time for him to have traveled to India. So even if he'd gone to India, he wasn't the governor of Bengal. There was no Lord Sanders who was the governor of Bengal. So he'd have had to make a very quick trip out there, found a recipe, come back. And then half the story is fake anyway, because he was never the governor of Bengal. However, Arthur Hill was not the only Lord Sanders from Worcester, of course, because this is a title. So he died childless in 1860. That's obviously a lot later. And so the title passed to his brother, Marcus Hill, who became Lord Marcus Sanders in 1860. So although he didn't have the title in 1836, because he died Lord Sanders, it'd be quite easy for historical records to obviously, that's his title forever, no matter what time he got the title. He yeah. is a Lord Sanders. He's Lord Sanders. It would have been easy for that to have been applied. That name would have been applied after his death. And he could have been considered that Marcus Hill, Marcus Lord Sanders was the actual person who brought the recipe. Uh, Because the original declaration by Leon Perrins in their first advert for their source back in 1840 had said, favorite recipe of a nobleman, they never actually disclosed the name of the nobleman who provided that recipe for them. Uh... The first source of the name of the nobleman actually didn't come out until the New York Times published a story about it in 1884 long after both of the Lord Sandises we've mentioned had dead, and Lee and Perrins were also dead. So this is like solidly uh, after everyone was dead. No one can confirm it. They're no all one, dead. No one can confirm it at all. So let's have a little bit more of a look at uh, Lord Sanders number two. Could Marcus Sanders be the nobleman in question instead of his older brother? So I did some digging on his history as well. Now, Marcus was also a member of parliament, And he was a member of parliament in Northern Ireland from 1832 to 1835. He then has a little gap in his history. I mean, he's not super, super famous, so it's not like an extensive history, but he's just got his basic important achievements listed. He then became the MEP, like the member of parliament for Evesham, which is incredibly close to Worcester, just down the road from where he lived, maybe like a 20 minute 
ride on a horse or something like that. I don't know how people get around back then. So very, very close to Worcester. And he became the member of parliament there in 1838. So there's this gap between 1835 when he finished his job in Northern Ireland and when he started his job just down the road from Worcester. He went on a gap year? Did he go on a gap year to India? This could be it. Maybe he went on a gap year. So there's a three-year gap where it's not completely sure what's happening. I mean, to get elected, he probably needed at least a few months. So he must have turned up by 1837, which would fit exactly perfectly with him coming back from a two-year gap year. So he'd have returned to his family home. He would have done some campaigning, and then he would have eventually become the member of parliament for Evesham just down the road. So for Liam Perrins to have stored this source, as the story suggests, in the cellar for about two years, but then not selling it at least before the late 1830s, then the original batch must have been made somewhere between 1835 and 1837. So that would fit really well with the dates we have at the moment for Marcus Hill having gone off some crazy trip. But the future Lord Sanders was definitely not the governor of Bengal in that three-year period because the UK has kept pretty strict records on governors over the years. Yeah, they were pretty on that. And there is a full list. So any story on the internet that is saying that Lord Sandus was a governor of Bengal is absolutely wrong, and I don't know where they got their information from, and yet almost every single article says that he was the governor of Bengal. Repeated, repeated, repeated. He is not listed as being a governor of Bengal at any time, ever, ever, ever. Scandal! Totally rubbish. It's absolute rubbish. So, did he go to India? I don't know. It's... Well, who knows? He could have gone to India. He could have. Yeah, he definitely had enough time to. But he finished his political time in Northern Ireland, and there's no record of what happened until he was back in uh, Worcestershire. He went to India, he got a henna tattoo, he, uh, you know, he chilled out for a bit, meditated, and then he got this idea for this recipe. But the problem is, like, the story is obviously made up, because one of the important components was that he was a governor of Bengal. Yeah. So, if he wasn't, he definitely wasn't. That's true. It's an absolute fact. There's no record of it at all. And there's no record that he traveled there. Why should we believe the rest of that part of the story? Here's what I think happened. Two chemists got drunk one night and they had a bet to see who could drink the most disgusting concoction that the other one, like they had, the other one had to make it for the other one. And if you could drink it, you won 10 pounds. And if you couldn't drink it, you know, you had to streak down the neighborhood. And I think this concoction came out of a night of drinking and they had to put some class to it because it was the 1830s. I, well, I guess Sanders was probably drinking with them. It's all, that's, my, that's my theory. Could be. Three we guys did. got drunk, dared, dared each other to drink some gross concoction. Butterbomb Worcestershire sauce was created. Could be. Who knows? But I think what we can probably quite safely say is unless Lord Sanders went off on a gap year to India and randomly came back and just lied about having been the governor of Bengal so that he'd get a new job in Evesham. Maybe hey, he well, did. could have. People would lie about that crap all the time. India was ages away. It's not like they're going to check his records. Well, unless that happens, it seems quite unlikely he'd just pop off on a jaunt to India and see what happened for a few months. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But it seems very unlikely. So there is still this important local connection with Worcester because it's on one of the major shipping routes. Ships were coming in from India, stopping in Bristol and Worcester. They pulled into the River Severn, straight up out from the the Atlantic, straight in there. And these goods were coming in. So all these ingredients were going to be available. 
it really just came down to them going, well, let's put some of these together and see what happened. Whoever was on the ship could have brought them some recipes and obviously they'd have had access to all the ingredients. So the inspiration for the recipe could have come from anybody. But what's more interesting is that one of Liam Perrin's first marketing strategies was actually to get their bottles of sauces on ships. Leaving Worcester and have the sauce served to passengers. This is documented as being like their first marketing strategy. They did this in order to spread the word about the sauce around the world. And it also suggests that they must have had some local contact in the industry because the bottles were actually being introduced to passengers by the stewards on board who had been paid off by Leon Perrins to promote their sauce directly to those rich passengers no who were traveling on ships. And this was happening before they even started advertising in 1940. It was sort of like maybe their soft launch. They were getting Leon Perrins' Worcestershire sauce out on these ships, getting the rich people to eat it and seeing what happened. So, you know, they already, obviously, this was their first marketing strategy before they even started advertising. <laughs> that's pretty clever. So that sort of suggests they probably knew someone in the yeah, shipping they industry. Were up. They were hooked up in the industry for sure. Now, so the question would be, why did they put in their first marketing strategy with the advertising? When they finally did advertising, they put in that there was a nobleman who loved their recipe. Because they were trying to sell it to Toffs. Because they were trying to sell it to Toffs. That's my theory as well. They're trying to sell it to rich people. And by saying that this recipe came from a nobleman rather than they invented it because some dodgy sea yeah. dog sailor gave them some crappy recipe he'd found uh, on the floor in India at a tavern. Like, instead of that, it's like, oh, no, this nobleman brought us this, but they never announced who the nobleman was. And they all died never announcing it. Oh, they took it to their graves. But they always said there was a nobleman, but they never announced who it was. So it is possible they completely made it up as a marketing ploy. There just doesn't seem to be a conclusive answer, but I'm pretty sure that might be what actually happened. <laughs> That's cool. But it does seem almost impossible that Lord Sanders would have visited Bengal in the 1830s and returned with a recipe and falsified the fact that he was the governor of Bengal in order to seem more famous or it, it just didn't work it puts a real dent in the whole credibility so i think that's the story of the invention they got some recipe off someone else who'd come back and they went how can we make this popular serve it to rich people say it was invented by a rich person everyone will buy it we'll get rich yeah. and they did so there you go as i mentioned the first marketing campaign was to get bottles onto the dining rooms on ships paying off stewards to serve the sauce to the rich folk in first class and the addition of the sauce having the nobleman as uh, the person who invented the thing, it would get those aristocrats stuffing that sauce down their pie holes as fast as they could. And it worked. So the exact dates that this initial marketing campaign happened are unclear. The timeline suggests it was in the late 1830s, possibly at about the same time that they'd be creating and aging the second batch. So they sent out that test batch that was amazing, sent that out, got some buzz, and then went, okay, we better start making batch two because it's going to need two years to ferment. And it still needs two years to ferment. That's how they make it. But yeah. That would have been it. As word of the source was getting out, they'd be like, all right, we've just produced some more. We're ready to go. So on October 17th, 1840, we have a specific date because they ran a major newspaper campaign in the Manchester Guardian, which is in Northern England. Um, it said, and it actually got the words for this and everything. Shall I do it in a Gloucestershire accent? Yes, Worcestershire please. Accent? Yes, please. I can't really do a Worcestershire accent properly, but... The Worcestershire sauce is prepared by us from our favourite recipe of a nobleman of acknowledged gout. Gout means taste, apparently. Oh, it's not like that big thing that grows on your neck? It is not. Okay. It possesses a peculiar piquancy. It's gone Irish now. Oh, gout's yeah, a foot thing, isn't it? <laughs> it is applicable to almost every dish. 
on account of superiority of its zest. I've definitely gone Irish. Yeah, you have. It's all right. Hello, Keep- hello there. Definitely Irish. All right, I'm going to stop that. The diffusible property of its delicate flavor renders it most economical as well as the most useful of sauces. So I, you don't have to use very much. It tastes great. You just use a little bit, which makes it really cheap and flavorful. That was their marketing campaign. So at that point, very much saying like a nobleman told us who it was, but we won't tell you who it is. In the same year, the sauce was already being exported to New York and handled by the local agent there, John Duncan and Sons. And by 1844, records clearly suggest that production had reached 31,680 bottles in the year of 1844. So they'd gone from one little barrel that they pushed out as a test batch to some people on a boat and to 31,680 bottles. Within four years. They went hardcore on the marketing. That's pretty good going, yeah. They had to move to a larger site because they were creating so much. At that time, they were bottling all of those 31,000 bottles in their little shop by hand. Wowza. So yeah, they had to go onto a bigger scale. Now, the story just keeps going. On June 9th, 1851, an ad in... For P.T. Barnum's Menagerie. Oh, yeah. P.T. Barnum! P.T. Barnum has a connection. They actually mention Worcestershire sauce in this ad. I he don't know why. He has his fingers in a lot of pies, old Barnum. Yeah, he was up to lots of stuff. But that's the first recorded mention in the press in the USA. So the sauce also gets its first mention in a cookbook recipe in 1851 as well. So by 1851, it's, it's pretty established. And that's just over 10 years since that's they started writing it. That's incredible. So as the popularity of the sauce grew, so came the imitators trying to steal the secret recipe. Of course. And in 1862, Liam Perrins actually ran their own ad, which stated, Extensive frauds. L and P having discovered that several of the foreign markets have been supplied with spurious imitations of the Worcestershire sauce, the labels of which closely resemble those of the genuine sauce, and in one or more instances, the name L and P forged. <gasps> they have deemed it their duty to caution the public and to request purchasers to see the name of Leon Perrins upon the wrapper, label, stopper, and bottle. L&P give further notice that they will proceed against anyone who may infringe upon their rights, either by manufacturing or vending such imitations, and have instructed their correspondents in the various parts of the world to advise them on such infringements. And that's actually from a newspaper in Quebec. So it was that far away they were going, people are just stealing our sauce and making this. Now, although they haven't given the recipe out, people were tasting it and going, I reckon I can figure this out." out. And, you know... That's it. So they were going, well, this is ours. You can't steal this. You can't call it Worcestershire sauce. And of course, there wasn't copyright infringement in those days. Exactly. Now, uh, although... They just put a heavily worded letter in the local newspaper. Yes. Bully, bully. Shake your fist. Don't do that. Don't do that. But in actual fact, a high court jury on July 26th, 1876, eventually declared that Liam Perrins did not own the legal rights to the name Worcestershire sauce. Because they're like, it's named after the town. And you didn't put this in as your patent when you, when you started the product. So yeah. they're like, yeah. So they retained the legal rights to Lee and Perrin's, the brand name, so no one else could use that. But they can't use Worcestershire sauce. Or they if- cannot. <gasps> and that is why bottles of Worcestershire sauce all around the world are called Worcestershire sauce and not something else. Because everyone can legally use it. It's like a public domain name. As the, the international fame grew of their source, they opened manufacturing in the USA, where the product is bottled with a beige label and brown writing, unlike the bright orange one we're used to in the UK and Australia. Mm-hmm. By 1896, a full industrial plant had been opened back in Worcester to meet demand, and that plant remained in operation until the 1980s. 
1930, the brand was purchased by British company HP, famous for their UK brown sauce of made with course. cinnamon. So, yeah. Now, the secret recipe of the original Worcestershire sauce has barely changed since its inception back in 1837. But during World War II, access to soya sauce became impossible. So, the, that ingredient was replaced with the delicious sounding hydrolyzed vegetable protein. Oh, yum, good. Yum. It turned out this product is much less expensive to produce and also didn't really affect the flavor. So it has been made with that ever since to save money. Oh, so like even the original version is still it, like is still using that version, like HP's version. Yeah. Or are they still use or did they switch back to soy? No, they never switched back to soy because it's like this is a lot cheaper and it tastes basically the same. Oh. So, yeah, this it no longer has soy sauce in it, which was one of the original ingredients everyone was talking about like, mm, I think it's got soy sauce in it." You can you can tell. Yeah. But they decided never to change it back and to this day it still uses that wonderfully delicious hydrolyzed vegetable protein. Yum yum. So, in 2005, Lee and Perrins at that time owned by Danone, actually or Danone. They bought it from HP. Is and that then, the yogurt people? Yeah. Well, they're a massive corporation, aren't uh, they? Okay. They owned it for a bit, and then they sold it to Heinz in 2005, and now Heinz make it. Yep. Makes sense. So, that's it. One of the most important sources in history may have been from an Indian recipe, but where they got that Indian recipe from and who they got it from it seems incredibly contested. Probably not a lord of Worcester. No. And unless they ever wrote it down and it's in like some secret space, which I thought would come out by now. We'll never know the truth. Well, apparently, they did have the original recipe written down, but not the method for making it. And it was found in a dumpster in 2009 and is now on display in the Worcester Art Museum what? or something. That's what I read, but I haven't been to the museum. And if the recipe was there, I don't think they put it on public display. They'd be pretty unhappy about it. No, that. they wouldn't put it on public display. I can't believe someone threw it out. Didn't know what it was. Just a load of old paperwork. Yeah, true. Exactly. So, um, whoever brought the original recipe to the UK will remain a mystery. Perhaps no one did. Perhaps they just went, hey, we've got a random bunch of ingredients in today off the ship. What are we going to make? Who knows? I'm still going with they got drunk and dared each other. Quite possibly. So, that's it. But the main thing I think we've learned today is that Lord Sanders was not the governor of Bengal. Nope. And you should stop believing things on the internet that say he is. He wasn't. So that's it for this episode. Please remember to subscribe to our channel so you get updates when new podcasts come out. And of course, leave us a review. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review. And that is it for this week. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on your preferred podcast app or channel. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.